Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. 
The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you both for reading. It's been a real joy to be here this weekend. Thank you so much for your welcome. Can't believe that it was 26 years ago when we first arrived. Um, and we owe this church a huge amount. And our children were born here. And uh, this was uh, our roots as a young family. And we were sent out from Fullwood to East Africa. Um, and so we're very grateful. And it's just a joy to be back for this Mission Sunday. And uh, so let me pray as uh, we launch into this extraordinary chapter in the story of the church from Acts. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. We pray that your word would be our rule, that your spirit would be our teacher, and that your greater glory will be our supreme concern. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bob Edens had been completely blind for 51 years, 51 years since he was a young child, unable to see, and then one day he could see. A complex operation, pioneering surgery, and basically for the first time in 51 years, he had sight. And he was overwhelmed. It was hard to try and make sense of it all, but he, he had some sort of vestige of, of memories of what it had been like to see, and now he could see again. And he was saying things like, I, I never dreamed that yellow is just so yellow. And, and, you know, I just don't have the words, but I'm just amazed by yellow. Um, but red, red is my favorite color because it's just so red. I cannot believe red and the shape of the moon, and, and I like nothing better than, than the sight of a jet flying across the, the sky, and of course, sunrises and, and sunsets. I could never have imagined how wonderful it is. Now, I imagine coming to Christ is a little bit like that, because the world that you knew suddenly looks different. Familiar and yet so different. Somehow the colors that you took for granted or were just familiar with, they seem to shine brighter and richer and stronger. And what long-term Christian believers take for granted, well, it blows new believers away as they see the, just the wonder of the gospel. And that, that's why it's so refreshing to hear a new believer speak of their newfound faith, isn't it? We, we should, you know, find ourselves in positions where we hear that kind of thing, which makes it so hard to understand why anyone rejects it at all. Uh, perhaps Lydia in um, Philippi was a bit like Bob Edens. Perhaps she had been amazed by this gospel. She responded pretty quickly. Uh, God had called Paul 
uh, in a dream to come to Europe. Uh, and then Paul comes and calls Lydia to God, and she comes. And everything goes smoothly. The gospel lands in Europe for the first time in history, and it receives a fantastic reception. Lydia is converted, and her house becomes Paul's first European HQ. This is the base of operations. God's kingdom is growing, and we should expect nothing less because this is great. This is the best thing that has ever happened to the world. This is the greatest story ever told. Of course, it should spread and grow. We expect nothing less. And yet, what we find in Acts 16 is that no sooner has it taken hold and arrived, things take a sinister turn. If you were here this morning, we saw that on the first missionary journey. This is the next one. And things get difficult pretty quickly. But Paul wasn't surprised, I'm sure. But I guess it was a big shock to Lydia. I mean, she just signed up for this thing, and then the heat turns up immediately. And perhaps it's a surprise to us. But we shouldn't be naive or ignorant. And actually, the, the, the incidents we, we read of in Acts 16 are a healthy corrective. They're, they're a sort of a, a get real moment. And basically, what we need to understand is, is what I've called the cruel power of darkness. It has power, and it is cruel. In verse 16, we, we pick up uh, from the, the previous section in the very same place, this sort of river prayer place, whatever was that, that was, but that was where Paul had met Lydia. And now we have another encounter, but a very different one. Another woman, but one whose name we never learn. A spirit-possessed slave. And so we see immediately uh, the cruel power of darkness through the demonic. Now, her gift is, is weird. It's genuinely weird. It's rather unsettling. She is able to predict the future. And as a result, is able to earn a small fortune. And presumably, we're not told any background, but presumably she's been doing this for a while. So it's just raking in the coins. But of course, she never sees a penny, does she? She's a slave. She's property. It's all a nice little earner for her owners. But you see, the trigger for this very sort of gruesome sequence of events, the trigger is not her powers of prediction, but her powers of identification. Have a look at verse 17. These men are the servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, what's wrong with that? Why isn't Paul chuffed? Why isn't he pleased? I mean, she is right on both counts. And she's persistent. She's like Paul. I mean, she's not going to sort of let this one go. She keeps at it for days. We see that in verse 18. Um, but it really gets under Paul's skin, doesn't it? Is this just a fit of pique? Is he just having a bad day? Well, the thing is, you see, it's one thing to have the truth told about you. It's another for it to come from a very dubious source. And that is the problem. 
it completely discredits Paul. So he is decisive. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out. And the effect is instantaneous. There's no choreography, there's no drum roll, no smoke machines, no sort of magic or anything like that. It's immediate. This poor anonymous girl is freed, restored to her right mind. Now Paul knew that Jesus is in control, even in this new continent, even in Europe. But he also knew that demonic powers are determined to distract, to disrupt, to destroy Jesus' work. Even if that entails, and this is the weird thing, even if that entails speaking truth. Because you see, for them, truth is just merely a means. It's just a bait for ulterior purposes. They don't believe it necessarily. They don't take it seriously in terms of changing their lives. No, it is just bait. But then didn't exactly the same thing happen to Jesus himself? We shouldn't be naive. The demonic world is real enough. It has all kinds of ways of sucking people in. And one common way to start is with, well, half-truths or perhaps just a few little morsels of truth just to suck people in. Take astrology, which may seem harmless enough, but uh, one writer I found very helpful on this is a chap called Charles Stromer, um, <clears throat> Christian writer who was converted out of being a professional astrologer. Uh, he climbed whatever the sort of the, the, the ladders are in professional astrology. I'm not particularly in that world. I don't quite understand it. But he was up there speaking at conferences all over California and the, the States and elsewhere until he was converted. He wrote this book, What Your Horoscope Doesn't Tell You. And he describes how he got sucked in. And one of the key things, and this is what impressed me most about this, one of the key things is that they used things that were true. And you get drawn in. You think, oh, well, there's something here. And, of course, there is. He said this. The thing is, it worked. And I thought that that was a good enough reason to stick around with something. Doesn't our generation hold on to that? They're all about things that work. It worked. But you see, Charles Stromer soon discovered that actually, just because something works, it doesn't mean it has your best interests at heart. And that's the difference. It might work, but it might not be good. And that's the thing with this girl here in Philippi. The demonic powers of darkness only exploit, they use and manipulate. They never heal or help or serve, ever. They are cruel. We must not be naive or ignorant. This is a reality. And when the gospel first came to Europe, this is what happened. But we mustn't assume that the, the power of darkness only works through the sort of spooky stuff, the spectacular or the so-called supernatural. 
It works in all kinds of other ways. And what we see next is that it works through something very mundane indeed, through what I've called vested interests. Just have a look at these girls, uh, the, the, the owners of this girl. Uh, Luke's original Greek actually is much more direct uh, than most English translations. It's interesting. In verse 18, Luke uses the same word for left her as in verse 19, was gone. The spirit leaves the girl. The income stream leaves the owners. As one goes, so goes the other. Or as he puts it here, their hope of making money. It's pretty stark, isn't it? When these people look at the girl, they just see cash flow. They don't care for a second about her. Just like the human traffickers supplying the brothels of London or Sheffield. They don't care. They just see cash flow. Nor could these guys care less for the Philippi community. So in verse 20, the charges they bring against Paul and, uh, and co. are sickening. They are only livid about having to find a new income source. Because after all, I don't know whether you found this, but, but slaves with predictive powers are hard to come by. So they're deaf to Paul's message. They are blind to God's power. They're not interested in the girl or the gospel. Don't be naive about people's vested interests. They're powerful things. Take the current economic crisis. And in some ways, I, I, I've talked to people who know much more about this kind of thing than I do. But I don't think we've seen anything quite yet. I think it's probably going to get a lot worse before things get better. I don't know. And many will be prompted to be reconsidering what is important in life, what they're building and aspiring for. It will certainly drive more, uh, some people, to be more uh, focused on, on wealth. They'll become more obsessed with it. Just like these slave owners in Philippi, the more insecure their wealth seems to become, the more determined they will uh, become to grow it. But as the medieval Christian Thomas Akempis observed over 600 years ago, he said this, For a small living, men run a great way. For eternal life, many scarce move a single foot off the ground. But it's not just the money. Here's uh, the philosopher Aldous Huxley just 60 years ago. He said this, I had a motive for not wanting the world to have meaning, and consequently I assumed that it had none, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for my assumption. The philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. In other words, he didn't want there to be a God because he wanted to live his own life. And so there wasn't a God, which is quite convenient, really. It could be anything. 
Huxley rejected the gospel not because it was false, but because it was inconvenient. These slave owners rejected the gospel not because it was false, but because it was financially unhelpful. We mustn't be naive. But there's a third way we see in this passage. These are by no means the only ways that darkness works, but this is the third in uh, Acts 16, through what I've called the status quo, and I'm not referring to the so-called rock band. Um, Look at what these slave owners do to the crowd and magistrates, verse 20. This is what they claim. These men are Jews and throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Do you see what they're doing? They're firstly playing the race card. These men are Jews. In other words, they're, they're, they're foreign. They don't belong to us. And then they play the culture card. As well as not belonging to us, they don't live like us. They advocate unlawful practices. And, of course, it's ironic, isn't it? Because (laughs) Paul was Jewish, um, but, yes, he was also Roman, which is going to be a little inconvenient for them a bit later. But this is a sort of textbook way to, to, to rouse a rabble, isn't it? Which they do in verse 22. I mean, what's better than saying, well, we don't do things like that around here. It's not British or Arab or Chinese or whatever. They become Christian in some countries and you're immediately seen as traitors, perhaps even puppets of the West. One friend in North Africa was immediately assumed to be a CIA plant and actually was imprisoned. Thus, the status quo exerts a powerful grip. It's not the way we do things around here. Anything a little bit different is a threat. People avoid change because they want to avoid standing out. They don't want to be out like a sore thumb. Paul's Philippian experience, this this time when the gospel breaks into Europe for the first time, this must alert us to mission reality the world over. And in Sheffield. We mustn't be naive. The bottom line is that these three barriers are used by the enemy and they are real and effective, but ultimately cruel whether through the demonic or through vested interests or through the status quo, all blind people to the reality and the beauty, the colors of God's truth, the magnificence and glory of His grace, to see how yellow, yellow is and how red, red is through Jesus, the one who made yellow and red. Paul understood this. Because, you see, he knew that his confidence was in a very different power. What we could call the loving power of God. So different. 
light years away. Now Luke now focuses our attention on somebody else. This time it's the jailer. Paul and Silas are sent to jail and the magistrates, well, perhaps they're doing them a favor. They're wanting to shield them from the mob, perhaps. But to add insult to injustice, we see they're to be bound and flogged. Now, this is speculative, but who most likely do you think had that job? The jailer, presumably. I don't know. We're not told. But as a jailer, he most likely was an army veteran. Um, The city of Philippi was renowned because actually it was a place where uh, um, Roman soldiers who retired were given a plot of land as a pension, and and that is one of the reasons why people in Philippi were Roman citizens. So it was a really big deal. This was very much part of the culture in this particular city. And as a retired soldier, he was a pretty tough guy, don't you think? He'd been there, done that. He had seen some pretty horrendous stuff in his time. And he was given strict instructions to guard these unusual prisoners. I mean, it's, it, it, it's odd, isn't it? I mean, you, you kind of wonder what they were thinking. You know, basically, he's, these two have been um, flogged and, and beaten and bound, uh, put in stocks. You sort of think, well, what are they, what are they protecting them from? I mean, are they going to walk out? Are they going to escape? It's unlikely. What did they think was going to happen? Nevertheless, verse 23, strict instructions. Guard them carefully. I guess the jailer would never in a million years have expected what came next. I'm not sure Paul and Silas were you know, that expectant. Maybe they were, I don't know. But what do we see? Well, we see the Creator's power. I mean, you see, everybody could tell that these high-security prisoners were unusual. After all, after what they've been through, who else has the energy at midnight to sing, even without hands and feet in stocks and under tight security? I mean, (laughs) I I can't help but um, be amused slightly by verse 25. I do wonder whether Luke has his tongue in his cheek slightly, Because, you know, he says, and the other prisoners will listen to them. Well, I'm not sure they had a lot of choice. (laughs) And what were they thinking was going to happen? Do you think they had people on the outside who would help get them out? I mean, they're foreigners. They haven't been around very long. I don't know whether uh, there are a few people, perhaps, who who are around, certainly, who know about the fact that... uh, One of the KGB's most notorious spies in this country was George Blake. And uh, he was caught and imprisoned in Wormwood Scrubs Prison. And then one night, on a quiet night in 1966, uh, with a little help from a couple of friends on the inside and some friends on the outside, he escaped, which is rather embarrassing for the British government. And he popped up in Moscow. Oh, hello. Um, He had a few friends on the inside and outside who got him out. So is that the kind of thing that's going on with Paul and Silas? Well, not quite. There are a couple of rather big differences. One is, Paul and Silas had no human accomplices. So that's a big difference. They were in league with the creator God. So the odds are slightly stacked in their favor at that point. 
Because it's as if at this point that the world of human affairs suddenly has the ceiling blown off. And the prison walls come tumbling down. In verse 26, there is an earthquake. The foundations shake. The doors fly open. The chains fell off. You know, we all know the great Wesleyan hymns. My chains fell off. That's what's going on here. It shows what happens when your guy on the outside just happens to be the creator. After all, who else could have timed an earthquake with such precision? It is some escape plan. Except for the second difference from George Blake, one simple fact. They don't escape. Don't you think that's weird? Verse 27, the jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Well, of course you would think that, don't you think? But Paul shouted, don't harm yourselves, we're all here. I mean, you sort of think, why? That was probably the biggest shock of the night, that these prisoners didn't do a runner. An incredible power had turned the world upside down. But a power that is not cruel or exploitative. Because this power, this creator's power, is used to rescue. But you see, it's not designed to rescue Paul and Silas. I think this power is to rescue the jailer. The seeds have been sown through these unusual prisoners. And, and when they stay put and keep on singing, I mean, more weirdness, it must have been overwhelming. If it was me, I would have run. And the response is decisive and impressive. Verse 29, he, he called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He, he then brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's interesting he used those words. Because isn't that precisely what the slave girl had said Paul was here to do? A way to be saved. And Paul and Silas were unanimous in verse 31. Believe! Trust! Trust in the Lord Jesus and your household will be saved. He's the Lord and he is the Lord over demonic powers, over all cultures and authorities and customs. He takes precedence over all of them. But this Lord does not seek cowering obedience. He's no dictator out to abuse power or exploit others for his own nefarious ends. That could never have been said of the impact of darkness on the slave girl or her owners or the rioting mob. They were just tools. But look at this jailer. He and his household, his family and servants all listened to Paul and Silas explain the word of the Lord. In other words, how this Lord views his world and how he rescues rebels. And the jailer and his family respond in various ways. They, they clean Paul and Silas up. Imagine, 
Imagine how humbling that must have been because the wounds they were cleaning were the ones he had inflicted. They get baptized immediately to show they belong to Jesus now. He's their Lord, not Caesar. This jailer had spent his life, his professional life, serving Caesar. But they open their home, they give them food, just as Lydia had done. Isn't that a beautiful parallel? Just like Lydia opened her home, so now this jailer is delighted to have them in his house. And in verse 34, he's filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God. He and his whole family, they had done exactly what Paul said you should do to be saved. They trust Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? The earthquake was not to rescue Paul and Silas, but to rescue the jailer. But you see, there is a third way that God's love is shown in a more subtle sort of, uh, sort of in-passing way. I've called this a concerned apostle's power. What do I mean? Well, it's, it's slightly convoluted, and it's quite hard at first sight to see you know, what's going on here. Why does Paul do what he does? But I think he's very shrewd indeed. Finally, verse 35, uh, the magistrates do the right thing at last. It's also, it just so happens at this point, the convenient thing. But, you know, we'll leave that to one side. They tell Paul and Silas it's time to go, but they won't. <laughs> You'd think that, you know, if, if they had any sense, they would get out of harm's way. But Paul says, no, we're not going. Not yet. Why? Well, because a gross injustice has been committed. Because, as we see in verse 37, Paul is a Roman citizen. Their entire treatment, therefore, had been unlawful, illegal. And if Paul wanted to pursue it, the magistrates would have got into serious trouble. So what he does is shrewd. Look at verse 37. He said, no, let them come themselves and escort us out. Now, this is not Paul trying to sort of rub their noses in it. He's presumably thinking about this baby Philippian church. It is literally days old. And things are definitely going to be tough for them. I mean, this is a pretty heavy start, don't you think? It's rocky from the get-go. But in the circumstances, I think Paul is trying to give them the best start they can by getting, you see, getting the magistrates to escort them out of the city in front of everybody, it is making a public statement about the injustice of what had happened. Now, no doubt, people would have ignored that. No doubt, all the sort of arguments that the slave owners had used about, you know, not being um, like us and not being our customs, they, they would have repeated those. But because of what Paul does here, nobody could get away with saying it was unknown that he was a Roman citizen, that he was unknown as someone who was actually obeying the law. You see, this baby church was not given birth in illegal circumstances. What Paul and Silas had done was perfectly legit. The whole town would have to recognize that. 
But Paul, I guess, also recognized that his continued presence was going to cause trouble. So after staying for a short time at Lydia's house, there we are back again in verse 40, Paul and Silas share parting words. But he's not abandoning them, because actually it seems that he left Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, left him behind in uh, Philippi. Because uh, I don't know whether you've noticed in the book of Acts, there are bits where uh, Luke writes, we did this. And then there are bits where he says, they did this. And this is one of the moments where the we bits stop. So presumably, Luke stays behind. And we see, therefore, Paul's love and concern for this baby church. A concern not to control them, but to serve them. So I want to close with, with two questions, really. Looking through this story, amazing story, who's really been at control, in control? And who had people's interests, best interests at heart? As Paul and Silas languish in jail sitting there in a prison cell, covered in lacerations and scars, with their hands and legs bound, singing. Who's in control? Well, it looks like Rome is, doesn't it? The magistrates. Yes, they're powerful. Nobody said that they weren't. Yes, they have power. But in the end, Christ has more, greater power, a power that is in control even in the darkest moments of life, and we can be confident in that. And while the powers of darkness always abuse and exploit, always, <laughs> the wonder is that God's power always works for the good. Always to serve and love, to heal and restore, to renew and recreate. Always. That is the profound confidence that Paul had. That is the joy of the gospel. No wonder the jailer is so overjoyed. And so should we be. He has our best interests at heart. Now, I have no idea what you face this week, this year, this decade. None of us has a clue. And there will be many things that we will turn to or be attracted to as things to hold us through dark times. And maybe things are going to get dark Maybe as the economy really struggles in the coming months and years, people are going to lose jobs, people's income, people's mortgage payments, people's, you name it. And I have no easy answers for any of that, nor does the Lord. But in those moments, we've got to ask, who has my best interests at heart? Who am I going to trust for all this? 
the Chancellor, the Chairman of the Bank of England, the World Bank, my family, my feelings, my stars. You see, just because things work, or at least seem to work at the beginning, it really doesn't mean they have our best interests at heart. No, only the Lord Jesus does. Seriously, only the Lord Jesus does. So don't be naive about the challenges, but don't be so overwhelmed by them that you lose sight of the one who has more power and is good. That's what sustained Paul as he came into Europe for the first time in northern Greece and went beyond. That has sustained God's people for 2,000 years and will continue to do so. And that is true of us in the circumstances of our lives today. It is true of us if we're involved in cross-cultural mission across the world. It is true of us in all that we do. So let us trust in him and rejoice and see the world as he sees it with all the glorious richness of the colors and beauty of the world that God is renewing. Let us pray. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. It says, what must I do to be saved? He was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this extraordinary story, this narrative of a world-changing moment. Thank you that because of the Lord Jesus, we are part of the same narrative, the same gospel, the same God, the same message, the same power, the same glory and grace. And you came to serve, not to control, to heal, not to use, to rescue, not to manipulate. You, Lord, have our best interests at heart, and we trust you for tomorrow, for this year, for the rest of our days. Please, Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Amen.